Well, don't you just love generous people? Think about it in your life. Not just generous with their stuff, I mean, but people who are generous with their time and their affection and their attention. People who are generous and patient and grace. Pretty much whatever they have. The truth is, I think generous people are wonderful people to be around because at their core, they tend to be givers. Right? It's a fundamental part of their makeup. And so when you're around a generous person, you benefit from their giving nature because instead of thinking about themselves constantly, of course, they're, they're usually thinking about others, thinking about what they can give or do for others, which can be very refreshing and life-giving for those around them. In fact, uh, generous people can really fill your tank when you're empty because they'd rather give to you than take something from you. Now, conversely... Selfish people, greedy people can really drain your tank. If you've ever been around someone who seems to only think about themselves all the time, uh, then you know what I mean. They, they talk about themselves and think about themselves and focus on what they want and how they feel all the time. So they never ask how you're doing or inquire about your needs or your life or how you feel. And, of course, that can be quite draining uh, over time. In fact, if you spend too much time around selfish, greedy, self-centered people, it can suck the life right out of you. Uh, it's why you see so many moms with little children feeling so worn out so very often because very young children, generally speaking, only think about themselves all of the time, right? And so you have all these little people who take, 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 take all the time and their moms who give, 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 give all the time, which is completely exhausting. Right? And yet there are adults who are much the same way. They never seem to pour into anyone else's life. They rarely think about what they can do for others because they're takers. They're always looking for what they can get from other people. And listen, to be fair, those are probably two extremes between people who are extravagantly generous and those who are excessively selfish or greedy. The truth is most of us probably fall somewhere in between those two extremes. I think most of us genuinely want to do for others at times at least, and yet there are other times when we want to do for ourselves. That's especially true. I think that's especially true when it comes to money, which is not a subject we talk about much around here. In fact, it's been five years, I checked, since I preached a sermon related to money or giving. And by the way, I'm not proud of that. It's just the truth, because I've chosen to avoid that subject like the plague. Uh, because I've been fearful, if I'm being honest, about being categorized as one of those preachers, right? One of the guys who only cares about your money, which is really nothing more than pride on my part, so we'll just call it what it is. But the fact remains, this, this is the second time since we started this church nine years ago that I am going to preach a sermon about giving, which again has been a failure for me. Uh, I've been in error in that regard because I am and have been adamant since the day we started the church that everything that comes from this pulpit would be word-centered, gospel-centered, Christ-centered. But that also means I can't just teach the parts that I like, right? the parts uh, that I'm comfortable with, because if I'm going to be true to that commitment to teach the whole counsel of God, all of his word, then I also have to teach the parts that are uncomfortable, which for me, if I'm being honest, includes talking about money. Martin Luther said, the highest worship of God is the preaching of the word. That includes all of his word. And so I've said from the beginning that I simply want this church to be whatever God wants it to be. I'm not going to try and be anyone else. I'm just going to 
try my best to be faithful to what he's called me to do, and then let him grow the church however he wants to do that. And it's why we teach our way through books of the Bible the way that we do. And to be honest, I never thought from the beginning that that would be a very popular way to grow a church. I honestly figured we'd have 30 or 40 people forever just because of the way we teach through books of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse, that this church has continued to grow throughout its nine years of existence. And I've learned along the way, it's because what people really want is to hear from God, not from me. People are hungry for the word of God, which is why teaching the Bible like that, word for word, line by line, verse by verse, is so much a part of who we are at this church. Not because it makes us look good, but because that is the way to guarantee that we're getting his word for us and not my word for us or anyone else's word for us. Right? It's, it's the difference, <clears throat> think of it this way, between saying, I have a word for you today and saying, I have God's word for you today. Right? And I've been convicted about the fact that I've been avoiding talking about one aspect of his word for so long. And so in a couple of Sundays from now, we're going to jump back into our series, working our way through Romans. But for today and next week, we're going to talk about generosity. Because number one, it's the right thing to do. And number two, generous giving by healthy, thriving, growing people is one of the ingredients that fuels healthy, thriving and growing churches. Right? And so we're going to talk about generosity in a two-part sermon that focuses on the subject of our giving. And this morning we're going to concentrate primarily on the spiritual aspects of giving. And then next Sunday we're going to look more at the practical aspects of giving as we discuss some of the vision for this church for this new year. So I think it's the right time to have this conversation as we lead into 2022. We're going to talk about some of the areas of ministry that we're planning on expanding and growing as we move forward forward, including things like Sunday school that I talked about that we really want to see expand and grow across the board for all ages in our church. Uh, but all of that requires funding, we, right? It requires consistent, healthy giving. And as we talk about giving then, listen, my prayer for you and me is that no matter where we are on that continuum, that scale of generosity, wherever you are, my prayer uh, whether you're very generous or maybe not so much, my prayer, my hope is that through this little two-week study here in God's Word that we will all become more generous people either way as we discover together the heart of Christ, really, because that's what matters, what He thinks about our giving, okay? So uh, as it turns out, God's Word has a lot to say about being generous, and as always, our great example to follow is Jesus Himself. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 together. It's going to be our primary text for this message, and we'll start with the first two verses. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. What Paul's talking about here in this letter to the church is a relief fund. He's talking about money that the Corinthian Christians are giving to support the ministry in Jerusalem, which was part of the church's ongoing outreach. Acts 11, 29, and 30 describes a previous collection of funds for the Jerusalem church. It says the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And those previous funds were sent because of the coming great famine 
in Jerusalem during the reign of Claudius, which was prophesied actually by Agabus, who was one of the first century prophets to the church in Antioch. And so God not only informed and prepared the church for what was coming ahead of time, even before they knew, he did it through the church leaders. He also provided money that would be needed for the church in Jerusalem to continue its ministry through the giving of the church members at Antioch and elsewhere. And then here in Corinth, in our story today, Paul's once again coming to collect money from the church that will be used to support the ministry in Jerusalem. And in verse 1 of our text, when Paul refers to the ministry of the saints, the word ministry in the original Greek is the word diakonia. It's the exact same word that's translated as relief in Acts 11.29 that we just read. Same word. So when Paul was collecting money for the Jerusalem church then and now, he uses the same language. And for what it's worth, he mentions this weekly collection in lots of other places as well. Uh, one being the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 16. Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are, you are to do. On the first day of every week, that's Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So part of Paul's ministry as a leader in the church is to collect money from the church and distribute it where it is needed to fund the ministry that God has set before them, okay? Keep that in mind. Let's keep reading verses 3 through 5. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So Paul's not only asking for the church to give to the ministry, but he actually expects them to give willingly and generously, which uh, begs the question, why is Paul so assuming as to expect the church members to give so lavishly toward the ministry? Well, let's keep reading and we'll see. Verses 6 through 10. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for growing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So in verse 9, when Paul says he's distributed freely, he's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He's quoting Psalm 112.9, which is not only a description of the righteous followers of God who give freely or generously, but it's also very much a reflection of Jesus Christ who distributed freely course to us and in that Paul is painting a picture for us to show us that generosity is the way of Christ which is the very reason we're to be generous givers as well it's why we give now listen there's a host of outcomes products of our giving which Paul talks about in this passage and so we'll talk about them too and they are wonderful but none of those are the primary reason we're to give generously now, fortunately, there are, unfortunately, there are leaders in some elements of the church who have sold this idea to believers all over the world that the reason we should give generously is because of what we receive back, money, 
material blessings, divine health, all manner of wealth and prosperity. And the truth is, listen, there are innumerable blessings, material and otherwise, that can and often do come as a result of generous giving. That's a fact, and we see it all throughout Scripture. However, those are not the reasons that we're commanded by God and expected by the church fathers to give generously. I just want to be crystal clear on this point. The reason that we're to give generously to the work of Jesus Christ is because Jesus Christ gave generously to us. That is why we give. That's also what makes stinginess and greed and selfishness so insidious, so undermining to the church and to God's purposes. You know why? Because those character traits are vehemently anti-Christ. They go against everything that he is. We, followers of Jesus Christ, are to emulate him in our lives, right? In Ephesians 5.1, Paul said, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're supposed to live and act like Christ, which means that generosity should be a hallmark in the life of every Christian because Jesus was extravagantly generous to us. Okay, and then in response to living out that Christ-likeness that is generosity, God promises all kinds of wonderful things. Of course he does. In verses 6 through 8, Paul explains that whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Right? And then in verse 10, he says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. As you give lavishly, extravagantly, generously, joyfully, not under compulsion, as you give, 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 God gives back to you. He does. He takes care of you. And so obviously, as we give generously, he gives generously. He heaps blessings on us. I can't even begin to tell you. In the time we have today, all the ways that these verses have proven true time and again in my own family. The more we've committed to God, the more we've given to him faithfully and joyfully throughout the years, he has faithfully and consistently blessed and provided for our every need. But there's another reason for that, for his generosity to us beyond simply rewarding our faithfulness to Christ, which Paul explains in the next verse. Let's read it, verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So Paul says that God is generous toward us so that we will in turn be generous toward others with what he's given us. Okay, Generosity demands a response. Now, of course, God has been generous, generous to us in ways that we can't pay back, right? <clears throat> what Christ did for us on the cross is a gift. It's not a loan. Right? And we know that. But his ongoing generosity to us in the form of the daily blessings that he pours into our lives, which is what Paul's talking about here, that generosity demands a response. This is the problem with the prosperity gospel, this idea that God dumps out blessings on us so that we can wallow in our own wealth and luxury while others all around us are suffering spiritually and physically. It's the very height of uh, arrogance. So Paul says that God is generous toward us so that we can be generous in turn toward others. Andy Stanley says it this way. Remember what your mother told you when you had two cookies and your sister had none? 
quick, eat them both before she can wrench one out of your greedy little hands. Probably not. She would say, share. What do we tell our own kids, nieces, and nephews when they have more than they need and a friend or sibling has none? We tell them to share. Watching someone eat two cookies in the presence of someone who has none doesn't seem right, does it? We feel compelled to say or do something. Perhaps that's why Jesus said, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you, Matthew 5, 42. Imagine seeing the world from God's point of view. Imagine being able to see everybody in the world who has two cookies and everybody who has none all at the same time. You would probably say something. You would tell everyone to share. If God has blessed you with more than you need, it's so that you can share your abundance with those who have need. Okay, generosity demands a response, and we do that primarily through the church. Throughout the New Testament, we see believers bring their tithes and offerings to the church. In Acts 2, in Acts 4, of course, in Paul's travels, money was collected at the church and then distributed by the church leaders. In Acts 6, we find the Jerusalem church had a daily feeding program for the most vulnerable among them. Okay, The church would collect funds from the believers and then use that min, uh, money to minister to those in need, spiritually and physically. And then Paul explains at the end of verse 11 that when we're generous by giving through the church, God is ultimately glorified as he's worshipped as a result of the generosity of his people. So it all comes back to Jesus Christ as our focus, even through the material blessings that he pours into our own lives. And so when we're blessed, listen, when we're blessed with jobs and income and all the things that make our lives better, we shouldn't make the mistake of believing that receiving those blessings was the sole point of the blessing. But that's what we often do. We thank God for the blessing and then we hang on to it because we figure that was the whole point. No, we are blessed so that we can turn around and be a blessing to others. Ultimately, so that God will be glorified through our worship, which Paul says again in the last part of this chapter. Listen, you guys have heard me talk about this before. Apple trees produce apples. Why? It's not for them to consume their own fruit. Apple trees don't eat their own Apples, they don't consume the apples, right? So what's the point of an apple tree producing fruit? It's to provide for all of the people and animals in the forest who need that fruit to sustain them, to keep them healthy and to thrive and to grow, right? The fruit you produce in your life is not for your own consumption. It's for the consumption of others. Let's read the rest of the chapter, verse 12 to the end. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Can you see how important our generosity is? When we're generous with that which God has blessed us with, we cause, he says, we actually cause other people to glorify God. Right? How many times have you been in need and someone came along and blessed you? And of course you thank that person, but don't you praise God for what he's done? Generosity causes us to worship God. It all comes back to him, and yet 
There's one more really important point to be made here when we talk about generosity, because that's what we define as a generous can be very subjective, different for each person, okay? So when Paul uses that word generosity in verse 13, it's the Greek word haplites. It literally means a copious bestowal or bountifulness or liberality, which can be different things for different people. You remember the woman with the two coins. She gave everything she had. So what, what generosity means is different for different people. Okay, it, 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 but when Paul describes generosity for everyone, it means copious bestowal, bountifulness, liberality. In other words, Paul is definitely not referring to our leftovers or our excess or whatever we think we can spare. No, Paul's talking about copious, bountiful, liberal giving. This is lavish giving. It's actually extravagant giving, okay? Generosity is extravagant giving. It's what it means to be generous, and it fits perfectly with the teachings and example of Jesus himself. And so for us to get a good understanding of just, just how extravagant Jesus commanded us to be in our generosity, we're going to take the rest of our time and compare some of the old covenant requirements with the new covenant requirements subsequent to the sacrificial work of grace by Jesus Christ. Because when we talk about giving in the church, specifically when we talk about giving money, a lot of people want to know what they're required to give according to Scripture. I get it all the time, and most of the time people ask about tithing, right, which we see references to in both the Old and New Testaments. And so people want to know, uh, am I still required to tithe under the New Covenant? And this is important because it has a direct bearing on how we define what generosity is. And again, ultimately, what we really need to know is what did Jesus have to say about it? So forget what I, I think. Okay, let's just talk about what Jesus said, all right? Tithing, and more to the point, how much giving uh, equals true generosity. And just before we do that, we need to define what tithing actually is because even that is often misunderstood in the church today, and I have this conversation a lot as well, all right? The, the word tithe in the Hebrew language is the word masayar. It literally means tenth or payment of a tenth. So 10% of everything that was owned or everything that was gained in the Old Testament was to be given to the work of God according to the command of God under the Mosaic law, which was recorded in Leviticus 27, 30 through 34. It says, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's and is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. That was a reference from earlier in the chapter regarding to those who wanted to buy back unclean animals that were not fit to be sacrificed to the Lord so they could buy them back from the priests if they added a fifth to the original value. Okay, verse 32, And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. So when we talk about tithes and offerings in the church, the tithe is literally 10% of your increase or your income. So if you make $1,000 a week, $52,000 a year, and you put $50 a week in the offering at church, that is not a tithe, okay? Because that's not 10% of your income. That is, that is an offering. You're not tithing if you're actually not giving 10%, according to scripture, okay? That's not me. So we see that under the old covenant here. In the Old Testament, in fact, we also see it before the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Law was even instituted. In Genesis 28, 22, Jacob commits 10% or a tithe of everything that God gives him back to the Lord. 
Also in Genesis chapter 14, when God gave Abraham a great victory over the king of Elam and he was returning from battle, he was met by a priest of the Lord named Melchizedek. And during that encounter, Abraham gives Melchizedek the priest a tenth or tithe of all the spoil that he had taken from the losing armies. Abraham tithed on all his increase back to the Lord through the priest Melchizedek. In fact, his tithing was practiced a long time before the Old Covenant, before the Mosaic Law. And so uh, let's see what changed then from the Old Covenant to the New, because a lot changed, right? Exodus chapters 20, 21, 22, 23, the book of Leviticus, other parts of the Old Testament, we see the Old Covenant, including the Ten Commandments spelled out. These were rules uh, for God's people to live by. They touched every area of their lives, rules about what to eat, what not to eat. Rules about what to wear, what they shouldn't wear, where to worship, when to worship, how to worship. Rules about how to treat each other, how much to give to God, where to give it, when to give it. Right? These rules governed everything that God's people did on a daily basis. So the Lord put forth before the people a set of expectations for giving. Expectations for giving their time, their energy, their abilities, their money, their goods, their devotion. It was all intended to be a form of worship from his people back to him. Again, it was the response to generosity by his people being generous in turn. And yet under the old covenant, all of that was based on percentages. Percentages of their lives and possessions. You gave a percentage of your time, a percentage of your money, a percentage of your life. Everything was regulated to offer worship to God based on percentages. The first four verses of Leviticus chapter 16 says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. In other words, you can't just waltz in here anytime you feel like it and make offerings to me. If you do, you're going to die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the, the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. Right, This whole chapter, and really the entire book of Leviticus, goes on and on and on about how and when and how much to give to God. There were very specific rules about exactly how to worship Him. It was all about percentages. And then again, Leviticus 27, 30 through 34, the tithe is introduced into the Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant. And equally important to the fact that He commanded His people to tithe here is to note the fact that God says the tithe already belongs to Him. Verse 30, every tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So he already owns it all. And here he's saying, as a part of your worship, I want you to offer it back to me so that it can be used to carry on and support the work of the ministry, this percentage of it. And so even the tithe was intended to be our generosity in response to his generosity. And so under the old covenant, all giving, whether it be in worship, sacrifice, devotion it was regulated what portion of each aspect of your life was to be given to god was spelled out in all these rules and regulations and then along comes jesus and everything changes all right we know that we're now living under the new covenant right and there's a lot of talk uh, in church in the modern era about grace and there certainly should be 
we'd all be in big trouble right now without God's grace. Scripture is very clear on the matter. We're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8. So without a doubt, grace is something we should all be talking about. But where the issue of grace becomes distorted, however, is when we start believing that the law of grace, the new covenant, somehow makes everything that is required of us by God less. Like he doesn't expect anything from us now because we live under grace. As long as we have faith, it doesn't matter how much we give to God. That's a, not only a misunderstanding, that is a profound mistake. Okay, the definition of grace is Jesus Christ dying on a cross for you and me. Grace doesn't mean that he's made a way for us to give less. Grace means he's made a way for us to give everything. Which is clear if you read, just read Luke. <laughs> read what Jesus expects from us. Right, and just in case you're not convinced, we'll just take a minute and look at how this covenantal relationship of God actually changes. This is Jesus talking under the new covenant, right? According to Jesus, right? We'll start in Matthew 5, 17. This is what he said. He's talking about the old covenant versus the new covenant. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay, the iota is the Greek word for yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And the dot was the part of that letter used to differentiate between the different Hebrew letters. In other words, the tiniest, most seemingly insignificant part of every letter of the law will be fulfilled in Christ. Now listen to this part. Jesus continues, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say whoever omits or deletes one of these commandments. He says whoever even relaxes even the least of them will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. These are very strong, very clear words. And as we read on, we see exactly what Jesus meant. He didn't come to set us free from having to make any more commitments to God. No, he, he made a way for us to actually be able to give God what he requires from us. He came because by our own power, we are never, ever, ever going to be able to earn our way into a relationship with him. We could not and we cannot. So Jesus did what we cannot do. He fulfilled all of that law that we can't. He satisfied all those requirements of the law in us. His grace did for us what was impossible for us to accomplish on our own. And so Jesus then makes very clear what the response of all of that is to be under the new covenant, what our generous response to his grace should be. Jesus continues, Matthew 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, he's talking about the old covenant, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, now we're talking about the new covenant, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That isn't exactly easier than the old rule, is it? It's much easier to simply say you're guilty of murder if you actually murder someone than it is to say now, in the same way, you'll be, you'll be judged if you're angry with your brother. It's as if you've murdered him. Come on, Jesus. 
I mean, that requirement didn't get easier, right? Under the new covenant, it just became much more difficult. Skip down to verse 27. It, you have heard it was said, this is Jesus talking, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, that didn't get easier. The requirement for staying free from adultery under the new covenant just became far more difficult. Let's go to verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Clearly, that didn't get easier. Verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, under the old covenant, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. That requirement certainly didn't get easier. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Are you serious? If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. That definitely did not get easier. What he's requiring now under the new covenant is asking far more from us than he did before. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I'm down with that. No, Jesus, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is infinitely more difficult than hating your enemy, which is easy to do. And yet that is our generous response to his generous gift of grace in our own lives. And so in the old covenant, God's people were required to go so far for God. Under the new covenant, we're required to go all the way. In other words, Jesus says no more percentages. I want it all. I want all of you. I want all of your heart. I want all of your worship. I want all of your energy. I want all of your devotion. I want all of your possessions. I want all of your resources. I want all of your passion. I want you to commit all that you are and all that you have and all that you care about in this world to me. Under the old requirement, he required a portion of your day devoted, devoted to worship and prayer. Under the new covenant, what does he require? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17. Rejoice always. Pray Without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's his will. You see the difference? This isn't a part-time deal. God wants full-time, full-on commitment, and he says nothing else is going to do. Likewise, with our money, we compare the old and new covenants, and we see that he requires so much more of us now than he did under the old covenant in every single area of life. So why do we treat the money part any different? Well, I know why. It's because we like our stuff. Right? I like stuff. Right? We work hard for our money. I, I get it. I'm not telling you, by the way, you have to go empty out your checking account tomorrow and put it in the offering bag or send it to a missionary. What I'm saying is that the same principles that apply to every other part of our lives in this context of old and new covenants also applies to our money. 
Under the old covenant, he required 10% of our income to be given back to him. Under the new covenant, you know what he wants? He wants it all. Well, okay, what does that mean in practice? Because, of course, we're taught in Scripture to take care of our families, right? We are. To pay our bills, of course. To store up for lean times, all of that and more, right? Why? We just read it so that we can minister to others, including our own families. So we don't sell everything, give all our money to the poor, and go live under a bridge. That's not what he, that's not what he calls us to do. But in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus is chastising the Pharisees for their lack of understanding and commitment to God. And he says, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He's saying to them, you pay your 10%. You tithe. Great. You should. But can't you see there's so much more that the Father wants from you? You're focused on percentages. God wants it all. We get so hung up in the church today about whether or not we're supposed to give 10% of our income. I can't remember. In fact, I don't think my wife and I have ever only given 10% of our income to the church. We start out every paycheck. We give 10% of our gross income to the church. That's just the starting place. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with your first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So we start out every paycheck. I'm just telling you what we do. We give 10% of our gross income to the church. And then every gift to missions, every special event, every special need, every guest teacher, that's over and above that we give. So that when we look at our overall giving to the church at the end of each year, it's far more than 10%. I'm telling you that. Not to brag, but because I want you to know that we're not asking or expecting anyone to do anything that we're not doing ourselves. So we give to the building fund and the missions fund and the outreach fund and every single person that speaks at or speaks into this church. We give to special projects and specific needs as they arise. And all of that is well over and above our tithe, the 10% of our gross income that we give at every paycheck. Not because he's telling me I have to give 10%, that's the requirement now, but because I want him to have all of it. So we start there. Why? Because Jesus wants everything, just as he gave us everything. And that's different for different people, right? Because what we have is different. What we're able to give is different. We understand that. But at the end of the day, it has to all be about Jesus. Okay, as we give back, we become generous people. And our generosity is not only a form of worship back to him, but it it actually also causes other people to worship him. It's all about Jesus. It has to be. And so the question is, what are we waiting for? Why not give generously if you don't? Lavishly, extravagantly if you're not. Instead of asking, how much do I have to give? Why don't we start asking, how much can I give? Why don't we open our hearts to become as generous as we can possibly be? Listen, in, inherently by nature, I'm a selfish person. I am. It's not natural feeling for me to give away money and things and time. But how can I not when I look at what he's given me? Why don't we open our hearts and be as generous as we can be? Honestly, what is it that we could ever hope to gain on this earth by hoarding the resources God has given us? What could possibly hold a candle? to the immeasurable and eternal rewards that we receive when we give everything to God. There's nothing. There's nothing we can attain or any amount that we can amass in this life that will ever compare 
to what we will enjoy for all of eternity by living generously now. It is the way of Christ, and it demands a response, an extravagant response. That is generosity. And Jesus is our ultimate example because he gave everything. And so should we. Let's pray.